The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. We are continuing on this week in the book of Hebrews. We are still in chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12 this morning. If you would stand as we read God's word together. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. This is God's holy word. Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, before we get started, let's just spend a few moments in prayer. God, um, we, we are grieved by the situation in Turkey and Syria, this earthquake that has killed, uh, I believe, 28,000 people. Um, Lord, we just ask for your mercy. Uh, we know that this is this this is just further evidence of the brokenness of this world, this world that is under a curse because of sin. You've promised that things like this would happen, that they would escalate before your return. And so we grieve, God, and we um, we know what the answer is. Also, the answer is your gospel. And so we pray that your gospel would be prevalent in the aftermath of this crisis. We ask that your church in that area would be strong, would be bold and courageous at this time. And Lord, we ask that your church would multiply. We ask that as people don't know where else to turn, as people see the, the, the bankruptcy of what they've been hoping in, that your gospel would win the day, that people would find hope in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also just want to pray for our leaders as you've commanded us to do. We pray that um, we would honor them in ways that are right. And Lord, we pray for President Biden and we pray for our Congress and we pray for all the judges. And we pray for Governor Pritzker and the Illinois Congress and um, local judges and magistrates of different types. Lord, we ask that all of these servants of yours, whether they know it or not, they are your servants, and um, you have established them to reward the virtuous and to punish the wrongdoers. We ask that you would give them skill at that job. We ask that you would give them wisdom at that job. We ask that you would establish justice through them. And Lord, we ask that their hearts would be drawn to you, that those who don't know you would be saved. 
And Lord, we ask that you'd raise up more and more Christian leaders um, who, who are leading according to your law, who know um, the true character of justice and who have wisdom from your spirit. Lord, we pray for the Source Church too. We ask that um, you would continue to grow us in the ways that perhaps only you can see that we need. You are the Lord of this church. You are our true pastor and shepherd and king. So we just express our submission to you again today. Jesus, anything that you want to accomplish in our midst, we welcome it. And we ask that you would do that work in part through these words you've put before us today. Open them to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since I referenced running marathons last week, I thought I would just clarify for any of you who might have gotten the wrong idea. Believe it or not, I was not a cool athlete in high school. Okay, I did run on the cross-country team. I did play tennis, but I was not one of the cool athletes. And I think it's because I wasn't one of those insiders that I actually really remember and, and enjoyed the annual sports physical. Do you remember those annual sports physicals? Like um, August would roll around, and uh, your mom had to make an appointment with the doctor, and then you'd go in with this form from the school so that you could play on a sports team. And uh, it had all these, this checklist, and the doctor would ask you all these questions, and he'd start marking no before you even answered the question. Um, I don't know what he was looking for, maybe a heart murmur, maybe an allergy to the green felt on tennis balls. But these times made me feel special because I, it was like I really belonged with the athletes, you know, because this was required for athletes. Without it, I couldn't even start the season. Well, today our passage talks about a physical checkup that's actually essential, a physical checkup for our souls. Verse 11 reminded us last week that discipline from God yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. And that raises the question, how could we preemptively support that process. We know we need training. We want to cooperate with God in that process. So is there a way we could get ourselves examined? How can we know what kind of training we'll need? If we want to join God and gain us sort of ship shape for enduring to the very end of this journey of faith, how would we do that? How would we go about that? And uh, that's what these verses get after today. Verse 12 starts with a very general sort of appeal saying, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. One of the ugliest things in runners with bad form is that they, they have those drooping hands. They're like running like they're doggy paddling, you know? Uh, and it's a laziness that comes from weariness. So lift those drooping hands. And strengthen your weak knees. Weak knees, you think of, of knocking knees and, and it gives a connotation of fear because the opposition seems so fierce because the task seems impossible. But if that's how we're, we're living the Christian life with weak knees, then we have to address that. And these verses are probably an echo of Isaiah 35, which says, Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. 
So some first questions on our physical exam for our soul. One, are you being lazy in following Christ? Are you, are you droopy hand running? How? In what ways are you being lazy? You know, get out your phone, open a note, get out a pen. Like seriously, just write stuff down. Review these questions later. How are you being lazy in your walk with Christ? A second question, how are you fearful in your Christian life? Maybe make a list of specific anxieties that seem to be plaguing you, slowing you down, and then match those anxieties against God's promises. If that process is hard or intimidating, let me know. We can talk through it together. I'd be happy to do that. You know, I was so distracted by anxious thoughts on Friday that I actually backed out of my garage before the garage door was totally up. And um, the garage door's okay. It's a little creaky now. Um, and who needs a functioning rear wiper blade anyway, right? It's, it's kind of irrelevant. But my point is that anxiety costs us. It costs us, whether it's repair costs or maybe it's, um, you know, relational costs. But it always costs us in our pursuit of Christ. Anxiety slows us down. Because if we're preoccupied with all these things and we're viewing them as, as if well, this is what's certainly going to happen because I'm just left to myself in this. Well, what are we doing? We're totally ignoring the one who has promised to be with us to the very end. We're not hoping in him. So anxiety distracts us from our pursuit of Christ. These verses also talk about making straight paths for our feet. It means we're, we're to ensure that we're walking straight past the evil that seeks to turn us aside. And we're not just following a straight path. We're not just, it doesn't just say walk on a straight path. It says make straight paths. So that means we're arranging our lives in such a way that potential traps of temptation are strategically limited. We're just going to make sure those are off to the side. We're not going to flirt with them, see, you know, oh, what's, what's going on over there? No, we're getting those out of the way. We're going to make a path that goes straight, no detours. So another question for your physical exam, what obstacles seek to slow your progress in the faith? Where do you need to make a new path that bypasses that? Have you thought about how you could just restructure certain life habits to make spiritual endurance easier? Think about that and, and write something down. How can you restructure your life to make straighter paths? Athletes have to make sacrifices all the time. You know, like foods that they really enjoy, they just have to leave off until during the training season. Or, um, and in the same way, Christians, we have to learn to strategically say no to some good things that we discern will actually protect us and strengthen us by, by just bypassing that. Uh, so in the end, the prize is worth it, and we know that those straight paths are going to keep our feet and our joints healthy, so to speak. Well, in verse 14, we move past the metaphor. We've been using all these, these metaphors about the physical body, but we're going to move past that, and he just speaks plainly and gives us two specific but broad instructions. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
whatever else endurance in faith looks like, we know that this is certainly true, that endurance in the faith, it leads to purity and it leads to unity. It leads to peace and holiness. And we know that Jesus, in his keynote sermon, he even emphasized, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now notice that this verse says strive for peace. It doesn't say achieve peace. You have control over whether or not you're striving for peace. You don't have control over how people respond. And Romans 12.18 puts the same concept this way. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, learn to quickly back away from controversy. So far as it depends on you, learn to communicate well and often. So far as it depends upon you, learn to not need the last word. So far as it depends on you, learn to be okay with being misunderstood. Learn to accept hurt and loss. Live peaceably so far as it depends on you. There's an account of a a Chinese Christian in the early 20th century who every morning had to hand pump water up to his rice field. But consistently, whenever this man was pumping, his neighbor would make a hole in the wall to his own rice field, which was on the terrace below, and that just caused the water to drain down into his field, saving him a lot of labor, uh, but stealing the neighbor's water, essentially. So the Christian, he was angry, he was frustrated and weary, But he prayed about it with his church, and he felt a conviction that this was a situation where he needed to pursue more than just justice for himself. And so he began a new daily routine. He started his day all the earlier, and before he did anything else, he would pump water directly into his neighbor's field. And only then would he pump water into his own field. And the neighbor was utterly bewildered by this form of peacemaking, and then in the end became a Christian and a good friend. So that's, that's what this looks like, striving for peace with everyone. But it is essential that we define peace correctly. We're not just nervously trying to maintain peace at any price, right? We want, we want to bring Winston Churchill peace, not Neville Chamberlain peace, if you pick up my meaning. Like biblical peace It's not always the absence of confrontation and tension. Sometimes striving for peace means that you have to start healthy conflict as you expose false peace for what it really is. False peace is a facade. It's playing nice while hearts are actually hating each other. False peace pretends everything's okay until one day the the top blows off the volcano of hurt and fury. Or false peace can be treating confrontation as if it's the ultimate evil. And when we, when we act like that, well, then the exploitation and the abuse of others is going to go totally unchallenged because, well, well we're pleasant people. We, we just don't like to talk about things like that. No, striving for peace means often that we have to strive for the lasting peace on the other side of the hard steps that might feel like for a time they're making matters worse. But even with that, even with that allowance of like, hey, sometimes true peace requires healthy conflict, 
we still need to, I mean, don't use that as an excuse. There's still a difference in the way that a person of peace wages a just war versus like how a self-righteous vigilante starts emotional dumpster fires everywhere they go. I'm sure you, you can appreciate that difference. So be a person of peace like Jesus. Think about Jesus, how he stood in the way of the hypocritical leaders who were placing burdens on the people. Be like Jesus who pleaded with those powerful leaders for the good of their own souls. And be like Jesus who, when he was dying at the hands of those blind leaders, did not defend himself. So he rested in the fact that this suffering was appointed for him by God and he prayed for his enemies because true peace is costly. Well, it's a lot easier to strive for peace if we've been striving for holiness generally. Um, there's no area of our lives in which we shouldn't be pursuing holiness. We, we never want to give ourselves a pass for like, well, God doesn't really care about this corner. Uh, Romans 8 says that a big purpose of our salvation, the whole reason why we were saved, was so that we could be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what we were made for. This holiness without which no one will see God. Now, if you were brand new to the Bible, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this verse is saying that we have to be good in order to win our way into God's presence. But I want to make sure that everyone understands that is not what this means. That is not what this means. Because that would be a contradiction to the good news message that flows throughout the Bible, including the book of Hebrews. We, the good news says we are not good enough. We cannot be pure enough to belong in God's presence. But something has happened. The sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, which has given us his status as pure and has made us acceptable to God. That's the good news. So if you're fearful and weak, but you trust in Christ, scripture assures you that salvation is a gift from the Lord, that he is the one who will complete that good work in you, and that no one can snatch you out of his hand. But if you're presumptuous, if you're calloused in your pursuit of Christ, then this passage reminds you that though we are saved through faith alone, the faith that saves never stays alone. Let me unpack that. The faith that saves never stays alone. It becomes adorned with good works flowing from the heart because our holiness is part of the gift. Our, our holiness was purchased by Christ at the cross. And so though there are going to be ups and downs in that pursuit of holiness, only those who have this Christ-purchased, God-given trajectory of growing in holiness, those are the people who will see God. So okay, we, we get how essential holiness is, but how do we strive for holiness? Does it mean that the one who lives by the most rules is holy? Don't handle this, don't taste this, don't touch that. No. No, if, if you're obsessing over behaviors, that will quickly lead either to insanity or to being a self-righteous jerk. Just like we don't want superficial peace, we also don't want superficial holiness, okay? And that means that what we need to be watching most closely is what we love. People run from holiness because they love this world more than God, and that disordered love, that's what's going to keep them from God in the end. So if you truly love God, you will 
become more like him. As you get to know your God, you fall in love with his character and you start to imitate his character. And yes, it, it often can be seen from your behaviors, whether that love has taken root or not. But in the fight for holiness, what we need to identify is that love, when we love something else more than God, that's what we need to cut down at its root. The way to pursue holiness is not simply controlling and suppressing momentary behaviors. We have to get after the source of the sin, not just cover over the symptoms. Now, verses 15 and 17 get even more specific about what the doctor of our souls might observe as problems for our endurance. But let's just pause here for a second, and I want to show you how I'm seeing this passage unfold. It kind of reads like just this list of, of commands, but uh, we have a slide to help us out with the, the structure. So first it starts with we need to live out this metaphor of finding what's hurting in our soul's ability to endure on the path of Christ. Strengthening weak knees, making straight paths, healing what's lame. You guys have that slide? Yeah, thanks. Um, but what, is that, what does that look like practically? To, to do those metaphors, to, to strengthen ourselves in those ways. It looks like striving for peace and for holiness. Okay, well, how do we do that? We're given three litmus tests, if you will. These aren't the only things that could be said about how to pursue peace and holiness, but these are three very useful tests to see how we're doing, to see if there's any problems in our midst. And so that's where the end of the passage takes us. Now, as we look more closely at verse 15, if there was any doubt before, here it becomes clear that this is a collective charge. We're being told corporately, see to it that these things aren't in your midst because the whole Christian community is supposed to help each other. We're helping each other examine our souls and we're applying preventative medicine and we're giving remedies to get the injured people back in the game. And we all have to be ready not only to give that sort of care, but also to receive that sort of care. And that means that when we're walking in the light of Christ, there's a certain self-awareness required and an honesty about one's own condition. We're really in trouble if we feel like we have to pretend that we have our act together. That's when your injury is really going to become massive. So we have to show our injuries. We have to call for the team trainer. We have to ask others to help us so that we can get back into the race. It's a team event, like um, kind of like the Tour de France, if you've ever watched that. I'm still not totally sure I understand it, but <laughs> my wife's family is really into it. So you have teams that are, that are racing, and they're working as teams, and they're maneuvering as teams, and yet it's also an individual competition, and they have to worry about their individual races. But... Then uh, at the breaks, you know, they have um, team supplies and they have team trainers and they have team bicycle repairmen. And we're like that too in the church. No one runs this race alone. Endurance is a team sport. Uh, and so there's this collective vigilance that's called for. Uh, as a congregation, we're all looking out for each other. We have our individual race of endurance, but none of us are doing this alone. If sports isn't your thing and you need a different analogy, you could also think about um, a journey. In the old centuries, when people went on pilgrimages in groups on foot, they'd have to stop and assess every once in a while. Is everyone still here? Are we all good? No one's getting lost? 
Um, and, and it's kind of like that in the church. Or um, I've never, maybe this is another surprise for you, I've never been part of a motorcycle gang. Um, but, but I kind of envision it in the same sort of way, that you've got to look in your rearview mirrors, you've got to make sure no one's falling behind or at risk of getting lost. And if they are, then, well, you pull over, you talk it over, uh, you see what's going on, and you encourage and help. At least that's my version of a motorcycle gang. Um, when we look around at our fellow travelers, what is it we should be looking for? What should we be looking for? To answer that, I want you to notice that these verses, these next verses, are kind of a riff on um, what would have been a very familiar passage to Jewish Christians. Deuteronomy 29. So I'm going to read that for us in uh, Deuteronomy 29, sorry, in verse 18. Try to note the similarities with our passage. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. This Deuteronomy passage goes on to speak about how such sin in the midst of the covenant people can infect the next generation, and it can spread to all the people. So there's this solemn responsibility placed on all of us to keep covenant with God in order to avoid the curses that otherwise can befall the whole group. And similarly for us in the new covenant, here we're told we must collectively be on guard. We must see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And one likely question here is, how, you know, how could we fail to obtain the grace of God? This is written to Christians, isn't it? Yes. But a very sad reality that we can never forget is that Belonging to the visible people of God, so belonging to a church, being a church person, that in no way guarantees that we are part of the family of God. It was that way with the, the wilderness generation that we talked about in Hebrews chapter 3, and it's that way in every local church. And Jesus told us there would be many who claim to be his and yet who lack genuine belief, who lack that obtaining of grace. And the first sign is that we keep our distance from him. We may go to church, we may serve in ministry, do churchy things, but actually personally in our hidden lives, we're keeping God at a distance. If you remember back in chapter four, it said that since Jesus is our great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what we have to do we draw near to obtain grace. But when people are failing to obtain the grace of God, then they may be facing troubles, they may be facing temptations, and instead of going to God to obtain grace, they're doubling down on self-sufficiency. And they're drifting, drifting, they're forgetting their need, they're ignoring their need, they're saying, I don't have a need. We may do churchy things to keep up appearances, not because we actually think we'll interact with the living God, and um, our prayer life becomes a sham because, frankly, we just 
want to keep our distance from God. And if we refuse to be near him, then we can't receive grace from him. Now the first sign of a lack of health like this is, is simply little taste for drawing near to receive from God. But a second, a, a second question then is, well, so what? So what do we do? How can we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? It's not like the grace of God is, you know, a jar of baby food and we can just strap each other down and whip out a spoon and force feed it. Here, have some grace. No, if, if someone wants to keep their distance from God, like, how, how do you deal with that? That's a big question. And I think the first thing is you have to call them on it. You say, hey, even though you're here, you, you just haven't seemed very engaged lately. How's your soul? How are things with God lately? Where are you struggling? And it's not natural to us to ask questions like that, right? It seems too serious, um, too Im- imposing. But when we realize that this is our job to help each other, to endure, then we won't feel offended by questions like that. We won't pull away when people are, are asking those questions. And the other person won't pull away when the, that person asks those questions straight back to them. But what, if you're going to go there, if you're going to go to those deep places, then you really have to listen also, okay? Don't just latch on to one thought and then tell a story from your week. Don't finish their sentences for them. Don't just kind of tritely and sprightly give them a five-cent encouragement and then check, job well done in my mind. No, seek to understand the numbness or the distraction that they're feeling from their pursuit of Christ. Another step is to try to bring grace to them. If a believer is isolating themselves or if they're drowning out God's word with the voices of this world, then we can try to bring grace to them, wrapping them into relationship, sharing what grace we've been given lately, praying together, pondering truth together. We need to be proactive in seeking out those who are straggling behind. And beyond that, like there can be times when pastors need to press in and rebuke or exhort someone who's drifting away, and hopefully they'll do that in ways that expose the danger. Like they're just pleading with the person, like, hey, I, I want better for you than this. And uh, they'll joyfully invite them to reorder their lives because that's, that's where joy can be found, enjoying God's gifts and promises. And so we have to have conversations like that to remind people about eternal perspective about priorities. We do that because we don't want anyone to simply just drift away from Christ and then fail to enter his rest after being so close. And secondly, in verse 15, we see that we're together charged to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. When someone's attitude is bitter, it implies that they can't any longer really perceive good. Maybe they've been hurt by something, maybe they've identified something legitimately wrong, but then at some point they stop trusting God with that dynamic, and the problem just becomes all-consuming in their minds, and then that lens just colors everything else that's happening, and you, ha- you can no longer taste the good. You can no longer walk in hope. You can no longer sincerely pray for your enemies. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. And that bitterness is quickly contagious to others too. Because we live in a broken world, it's really not that hard to convince people to despair and 
to be disgusted, right? Now, we can't control when bitterness comes knocking on our door, but we can control how we respond to that temptation. And I'm sure all of us have experienced bitterness at different times in a relationship or maybe even in the church if you've had a church hurt experience. Um, After I left a, a previous ministry post where it seemed that Satan was hurting many sheep through deceitful and manipulative leadership, I was very much slipping toward bitterness. But my uncle wisely exhorted me on the phone. He said, Scott, you have to drop the bitterness right now before it's too late because not only will it taint your future, but it will spoil the good fruit that has actually been born through your work there in the past. And I I was really thankful that God used that comment to wake me up to how I was slipping into bitterness. So we can exhort others like my uncle did. We can help each other to see that poison that's springing up in our hearts. Even if the first cause was something messed up that happened to that person, it doesn't entitle us to become bitter. God is still on the throne, right? Sin will be found out. Everyone will be humbled. The church will be purified. We can trust in these things. And so we don't need to hold on to bitterness. And we can remind each other of those truths and we can turn a new page into what I like to call stubborn joy. And it's a joy that's all the stronger because some of the naivete has been burned away. Another way we can keep a root of bitterness from springing up and defiling many is to say no when we hear gossip or slander. You don't have to be a jerk about it because you know the person who's, who's saying those things is probably really hurt. But you can be bold enough to have that conversation of, you know, you know, I think we really need to be careful how we talk about these things. It's not that I don't believe you. It's not that I don't hurt with you. But I love that other person too. And so I just want to make sure that, that people won't draw conclusions without knowing their perspective as well. And then you can end that conversation together in prayer. And you can entrust that hurt to God. You can ask him to bring justice because he can change things far better than we can. And his is the only court of opinion that matters. And he doesn't need our help to, to change public sentiment or, or control the appearance of things. If something needs to be outed, we need to leave that to God and not try to do his work for him. One more observation about bitterness. Sometimes the bitterness that grows isn't against a specific person or a specific group of people, but it's actually against God himself. Many times this creeps in when we suffer in ways that we feel is disproportionate compared to the people around us. I think our culture is very sensitive to that because we live in a culture that demands immediate answers and immediate relief, and we demand an experience of fairness based on how we define that term. And so it's not hard to start to doubt the wisdom or the goodness of God when you've been suffering a lot. But that leaves us in a very dangerous place where bitterness could lead us to just throw it all away. And if that sounds relevant to any of you, I'd really encourage you to talk to one of the pastors about it. Um, Hopefully last week's sermon might prove relevant too, uh, to bring some perspective if you were to go back and listen to that. Or if you go on our website, you can find last spring we did a series through the book of Job. That might also be helpful. But however you do it, press into God's word and think rightly about his character. 
see what the Bible says about his sovereignty and about the nature of suffering and then hold on to those good promises that are for you in Christ because they are sufficient to bring you through to the other side. And lastly, we're told here a third thing that we need to see to as a group. In verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau, the son of Isaac, the brother of Jacob, he's portrayed here as kind of the opposite of that chapter 11 crowd of witnesses that we should imitate. Esau is not an example for us of endurance. He is not an example of faith. It's not that Esau was hostile to the faith. It's just that he was ambivalent. His priority was living for the now. He had a this-worldly focus to life. And it's not clear in this verse whether Esau is meant as the example of sexual immorality also or just the the unholiness or profane living in this verse. Um, Certainly we know that Esau tended to live for immediate gratification, so the sexual immorality piece fits. Uh, We know that instead of finding a wife who worshipped the God of his fathers, Esau married two Hittite women, and we read in Genesis that those women made life bitter for Esau's parents. But the main event being referenced here in verse 16 occurs at the end of Genesis chapter 25. And you're probably maybe a little bit familiar with that story if you've been around the church for a while. Esau was the older brother. And by rights, he would inherit the family's great wealth and even more importantly, the promises made to Abraham by God that through one of his offspring, all clans of the earth would be blessed. But in an act of horrific foolishness. Esau comes back from this hunt and he's weary and exhausted and he actually accepts his brother's offer of a bowl of stew in exchange for the family birthright. Yep, it's as stupid as it sounds. All he could think about was his stomach. Esau had no taste for the sacred role that rightfully could have been his. And the inspired author of Hebrews wants us to see this act as an illustration for all kinds of ways that we live according to our impulses. How many people walk away from the promise of life in Christ because they want what they want, and they want it now, and Jesus isn't going to get it for them? Sexual immorality is probably the most prevalent bowl of stew for which people trade away the gift of God. We're talking about sexual contact before or outside of marriage. We're talking about any pornography, any sexual expression contrary to God's design. And we go there in the name of romantic love or in the name of letting off steam or escaping troubles or just feeling good for a change. And we set ourselves on a dangerous path of sexual sin. It's short-sighted, it's ruinous, and it, it never happens just once. But Esau's unholiness is even broader than that. You know, people trade away the blessing of God for all sorts of trivial and and passing things to get security, to get a reputation, to get relief, to get even. How are you tempted to disregard the holy things of God in order to ease your own discomfort? Think about that. In what ways is your life uncomfortable? And then in what ways are you tempted to ease that discomfort by ignoring or shoving to the side the holy things of God? 
if you make that discomfort in your life your obsession, if you think like life could just be good if I could just get rid of this or just find a way to deal with this, if you make that your obsession, I guarantee that pots of stew are going to show up offering to take it away. So our life in Christ has to be about more than just filling our perceived needs for today. If not, we're, we're just not going to endure. I had a friend whose teenage son asked him, like, Dad, if why is it that so many people say that they believe in God, but then they end up sexually immoral or they end up with some addiction? Um, and their dad wisely said, well, they may believe in God, but they don't believe in heaven. They think they have to grasp for pleasure now because they don't trust that he's making all things new and that he rewards those who seek him. And so they're trying to fill their hunger for spiritual things with physical things. Now, obviously, such a lack of trust in God's promises, that's serious. But is it fatal? Potentially. Verse 7 says this about Esau. Um, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We have a description in Genesis of Esau's tears when his father Isaac told him that he had given the blessing to his brother Jacob. And Esau sought the blessing with tears. But in that specific historical situation, it was just too late. Even if Esau had experienced a change of heart, which I don't think it's clear that he did at all, it was simply too late. And the author of Hebrews wants us to remember back to chapter 6 of Hebrews. You remember that? Chapter 6, he explained that it's possible to slip into a hardness of heart from which one will never repent. The problem isn't God. God accepts true repentance always, whenever, whatever sin has been committed. God accepts true repentance But if we're always dodging that honest look at our own sin, and if we're always grieved over the consequences of our sin, but not over the sin itself, then we will never find an opportune place to turn around. Those who live for the next thrill soon find that they can't stop that pattern, nor do they really want to. So we have to keep eternity in our minds when the bright and shiny things are are trying to make our path crooked. We have to have eternity in our minds and the eternal one, God, whose character we love. We have to see not just the bad consequences of our sin and hate those. We have to hate the sin itself because it displeases God, who we love. And when we're there, then we can endure the discomfort of today. We can walk that straight path. If you've been stumbling down a crooked path, I want you to know that right now is the moment to decisively turn around and begin not just hating the consequences of your sin, but hating your sin itself, loving the character of God and saying yes to him. Do it now before it's too late. And how do we do that? Not by turning inward, not by obsessing over our behaviors and psychoanalyzing ourselves to death. We do that by returning to verse two of this chapter, which says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is victorious where we feel that we can't be. He is your champion.
So we've seen three big indicators of serious sports injuries in this race of endurance in following Jesus. One is if we doubt our need to draw near to obtain ongoing grace from God, that's, that's a serious warning sign. Second, if we defiantly sit in cold and bitter judgment over the church or over God himself, that's a big warning sign. And if, like Esau, we devote ourselves to chasing immediate gratification, that is a big warning sign as well. These tendencies indicate great danger, and that's why we have to pursue peace and holiness together. Are we striving for peace and holiness, or are we actually working against them? So I want to ask you, will you perform this physical checkup on your soul? Will you go home? Will you think over these questions that we've talked through? And don't, and don't just go quickly like the doctors at the, the physical exams, like, no, 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 no. Think about it. Actually assess what's going on in your life. And after you've done that and prayed through that, then will you humbly and lovingly help your brothers and sisters to notice their own injuries as well? Only then will we all be whole enough to persevere to the end because endurance is a team sport. Our great God, we thank you that we are not alone on this journey. We're not left to our own devices. But you've set the course before us. And if we seek to lift our drooping hands, if we seek to make, make straight paths, you are there to aid us. Your spirit will give us everything we need. So Lord, I ask that uh, we would have great intentionality in how we walk with you. And that this would be exciting for us. It wouldn't feel burdensome but we would realize that this is the path of joy. This is the path toward flourishing. And God, we ask that, um, that as we endure in that way and as we help each other endure in that way, the world would take notice and many more would come and find fulfillment in you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.